0: Thinking Aloud: Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Making America Sacred Again. This is the fourth in a series of interviews with my friend and neighbor, Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, who is the author of Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. If you haven't watched the first three interviews in this series, I highly recommend that you check with our listings and take a look at them. that will make this one much more interesting and meaningful for you. Glenn is also author of Original Thinking a radical revisioning of time, nature, and humanity. Even though Glenn is my neighbor, this is an internet interview, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Glenn. It's good to see you once again.
1: Very wonderful to be here, Jeff. Thank you, as always.
0: Now, today, our focus is going to be on what is actually the subtitle of your book, Making America Sacred Again. And, uh, for view, so not all of our viewers will have had the benefit of watching the previous three interviews we've done, uh, a lot of which has to do with Native American culture and their sense of uh, the sacred. So let me begin by asking you, how would you define what is and is not sacred? Mm, That's a great question.
1: Um, Obviously, my book subtitle is a play off of Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. And there's a huge difference between being great and sacred. You know, great, I associate with the 1927 Yankees, you know, Babe Ruth hitting 60 home runs. It's about being dominant, powerful. Sacred is an entirely different thing. Being sacred means to invoke the whole. It Literally, is connected with the word holy, uh, and holy comes from whole. So when you're when you're when you're doing things in a very sacred way, you're inclusive. You're including the, the elements. You're including the light, air, water, earth. You're including all the people. You're including all the animals. You're including all the birds, the fish. You're being inclusive, um, and uh, that really is the major.
0: You know, as I think about the previous history of, of America, it, we weren't inclusive from the beginning. Women didn't have the right to vote. We had slavery in this country. Even after the slaves were free, we engaged in uh, warfare against the Native Americans. Uh, Uh, many people describe it as genocide uh, or near genocide, uh, as a matter of fact. So I'm not sure America was ever whole in the sense you're describing.
1: Well, uh, we talked about those things in previous interviews. But when I say making America sacred again, I'm not talking only about the nation. I'm talking about the land and also the way that People acted before there was the United States of America. This was still America. Of course, it was called Turtle Island then. Um, so at that time, the way Native Americans conducted politics was done in a sacred way. I'm not saying it's perfect; it was perfect, but there was, an, there was an intent to invoke the whole. It's really a Western idea about just doing politics for the people. So there was a time when the actions of human beings were considered and how it affects the whole. That's what I mean by sacred. And I would say, yes, that we were sacred before the United States was ever formed.
0: I do know, and I, it's probably worthy of, of addressing, uh, there were comments from viewers on uh, our previous interviews to the effect that we have to be careful not to romanticize indigenous peoples. They uh, they had their faults. They made war. Uh, they. Uh, I think uh, some people say the indigenous peoples exterminated large mammals that used to exist.
1: Well, I, I personally don't believe all of that, there was a revisionist movement, you know, from, uh, 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 Shepard uh, uh, who wrote the ecological Indian, um, and other authors that, that, uh, Jared diamond, you know, which tried to look back in time and, and, and they said that native Americans weren't all that ecological. They were actively working with the land. I would say this, Jeff, that comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of what being ecological is. (laughs) Being ecological isn't conserving as in hands off, which is kind of the Western idea of conservation, where let's set this land aside, like Yellowstone Park. You know, um, my, you know, my friend, uh, a person that I worked with really closely, Leroy Little Bear, once went to Yellowstone Park. And he said to the park ranger, "Did you did you set Yellowstone apart to be an example of how we should operate everywhere, or did you set Yellowstone apart so that we could destroy everything else? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you know, it it it, it it's uh, there." It is true that we should not over-romanticize Indians, which were done. You know, the whole concept of the noble savage is a very long tradition of over-romanticizing Indians. Yes, they did have their their wars, their skirmishes. Um, Indians, uh, and I'm using the word Indians, you know, I hope that doesn't offend anybody. I said very early in my book, by the way, that I use a lot of words. It was Native Americans, Natives, Indians, etc., But um, when I, in any case, um, no, Native American politics or Native American governments, Native American peoples are not perfect, but they did have a greater concept of including the whole. And that same concept was there in the West until the time of Socrates. That's when we started to shift the meaning of the greater good to be for human beings only. Really, Jeff, that's a major portion of the book is I'm trying to expand the definition of politics to go beyond just human-centered.
0: But even uh, if we keep it to the human-centered level, I know one of the very first points you make is that uh, we have to start listening to each other again. That (laughs) <laughs> Our politics has gotten so degenerated that that the two political parties uh, are in separate silos. They don't talk to each other as much as they need to. They don't listen to each other. They don't seem to be as interested in compromise as was traditionally the case.
1: Yes, that's very important. I mean, original original politics ends with love, actually but before we talk about love we need to build a foundation of respect so just like if you were building a home and you're and you wanted your top floor to be the most beautiful spiritual um a frame meditation place um if, if that wouldn't work if your first if your if your first floor was falling apart the the foundation of uh politics ought to be respect, and particularly in America, ought to be listening to the minority party. That came from Native America, that concept of deep dialogue, listening, not interrupting on the congressional floor. All those principles came from Native America, the 21 Iroquois Braves that were there in the very inaugural meeting discussing the Declaration of Independence, suggested and put in those protocols so that's why we're different than our, you know, over our mother country in Britain, where they yell and scream and pound their fist on the on the on the British Commons floor. Um, so, no dialogue is very important. Regular order, and I know that doesn't sound like a sexy term, but regular order is, you know, as they say, how the sausage is made. That's what John McCain implored. The Congress to do in really the last days of his life, that's why he voted against Obamacare. He was very upset that you mean he voted against the repeal of Obamacare Thank you for that important correction. He voted against the repeal for, uh, of Obamacare, well, he wasn't even voting for Obamacare so much as he was voting against the 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 the, the messed up process. He didn't like that the, that the Republicans had had meetings in secret, had not held uh, any kind of uh, committee meetings where amendments could be proposed or the minority party could have any input. And he was also upset at the Democrats who had passed Obamacare in a similar way. I mean, they didn't start out doing that, but, but the final product was passed through the reconciliation process. After the Democrats lost their supermajority in the Senate, you know they no longer had 60 votes. So they, but they passed it through reconciliation. Remember when Scott Brown won in Massachusetts and they lost the supermajority? So that's what they did, and and that's what pissed off the Republicans. And then the Republicans just, you know, just took one wrong and made another wrong, and we've created a very uh, dysfunctional process. It really goes back about 20 years where we're no longer working in as much compromise, as much regular order as we used to. And a lot of those processes that were built in, particularly to the Senate, were very good processes. We need to go back to them.
0: That's the foundation. If we're going to have a, a, a sacred nation, we have to uh, start with regular order, treating uh, each other with respect before we can begin to treat the land with respect, because we regard the land as even more other than the other party, uh, in, in a way. Uh, and you also point out that conservatism at one time meant conservation of our natural resources. Yes.
1: And I go into the difference between European or modern European conservatism and American conservative. Because it's very, very different and it makes sense, perhaps why it evolved that way. America was the land of plenty. The resources seemed infinite. You know, when Thomas Jefferson was telling people to, you know, go out and find your own plot of land, when Abraham Lincoln was doing the Homestead Act and giving 160 acres to every American citizen or anybody who declared their citizenship to plot and, you know, take care of their land. It was this idea that it, those resources were infinite, but that's not really true anymore. So what they learned in Europe, um, European conservatives do have a more developed ecological consciousness. They have a much smaller land mass it was it was it was polluted and and uh, decimated a, a long time ago, and more recently their consciousness is more attuned to resurrecting it. So I would say to all conservatives, it's right in your name, conserve, conserve what is important, and that, it, there's nothing more important than clean air, clean water, and good soil. And it wasn't that long ago that conservatives did believe that in the United States of America in the 1970s. Although Richard Nixon did veto the Clean Water Act and it was overturned because there was almost a almost a complete consensus in the Congress for clean water and there was uh, and for clean air and it was during the Nixon administration that we established the Environmental Protection Agency. So it wasn't very long ago and really even up to George H.W. Bush there was some cooperation between conservatives and liberals having to do with environmental issues we've gone away from that and to some degree both parties are bought and paid for by lobbyists um but to a lesser degree the democrats perhaps and that i'm getting into controversial waters here at least it's the democrats that are making a little bit more effort to preserve the ecology now um, but i would argue it's the liberal progressive mentality that actually caused the most pollution if we go back to the Industrial Revolution, the idea of progress, 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 that caused a lot of pollution. And now, ironically, it's the liberal progressives who are trying to clean it up and the conservatives in America who are not, but true conservatives would want to conserve the land.
0: There is this issue in our uh, culture these days of the rich versus the poor, the corporations uh, and, and with their need to exploit natural resources versus the uh, nature and the ecology. And uh, Native Americans, of course, have been pushed aside uh, in order to uh, put in oil pipelines across their land.
1: That's what Standing Rock was all about. And it was a good thing that Standing Rock penetrated consciousness, um, because it's really that, you know, what Native people were saying is, we are the water, we are the air, we are the, the land, you know? So when you pollute those things, you're polluting ourselves. It doesn't just work out for economic benefit. But of course, for your viewers who say that we're over-romanticizing Native Americans, they it's true that a lot of native tribes now vote in favor of polluting projects. Sometimes when they provide jobs, this happened on the Navajo nation sometimes, you know, because I mean, the Navajo nation is very big and there's a lot of enormous amount of unemployment um, and poverty, you know? So uh, it's hard. These are hard decisions for any person uh, to make. There are trade-offs. Um, ideally the Navajo nation and, and a lot of the Southwest could be converted into solar wind, you know, those kinds of things could work and destroy the environment less. I mean, they're not perfect either. You know, there's, you have to use some petroleum to actually create solar, but that's complicated. Yeah.
0: We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Uh, as as we speak. That's why, even though you and I are neighbors, we're conducting this interview uh, via the Internet. And uh, I think that uh, I have heard from various guests on this program that say that the pandemic is in some way a reflection of our collective consciousness. Uh, I I wonder how that fits into uh, your notions of making America sacred again.
1: Oh wow! what a, a beautiful thought yeah there's some beautiful thinking coming out now with regard to the pandemic. I don't want to minimize the death and the suffering that the pandemic has has caused, but this crisis is an opportunity to change um, the cessation of incessant human economic activity uh obviously help the land a little bit and we began to see signs of that recently some of the signs are probably reported a little incorrectly i mean you know there was reports that oh dolphins are coming into the venice canal they're probably always there nobody just saw them you know but but the water is getting clearer even the ganges is getting clearer and people are saying you could drink it and I wouldn't advise that but 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 still, there is obvious i mean there's NASA you know photographs showing climate change has been you know the the goals that we were making at the Paris Accords were actually far exceeded by stopping economic activity, but human beings would then have to find it figure out how could we actually how could we live if we didn't have these kind of economic machines. Um, And I think that is the question of the age. We're going to have to learn to not be addicted to economic growth in the same way we have. Because the economic growth covers up all the social ills as far as whether you're a liberal or a conservative. If you're a liberal and you want to spend on social programs, you need a lot of economic growth to reinvest. If you're a conservative and you want to cut taxes, you need economic growth to, to cover up that. So it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you 're on everybody's for economic growth, even the independents Bernie sanders they're for economic growth. but you know what that is not that that has to change uh, that has to change that's the mentality that has to change. There are people who've been talking about this for so long, as you know, like Herman Daly, you know a great economist you know and and there's a whole socially sustainable, I don't like the word sustainable, but that economic movement um, that is rethinking things, trying to give us new measures of well-being, all of this has been going on for 25 more years. You know, I'm sure you know, we've probably interviewed Hazel Henderson or whatever, you know, and these people that have been talking about this. But now we have an actual case scenario where we can see the results when we roll back So I would propose that we find a way to have rolling moratoriums on economic activity in different nations and uh, uh, and just enough to give the earth a breather and enough to start rethinking how we should live.
0: You know, I hear from people, young people in particular, who uh, are really questioning the uh, capitalist model that we have inherited, where they go to college and they come out deeply in debt. And uh, then they uh, have to struggle to find a job that they're going to hate most of their lives. I think the statistics show that 99% of working people do not like their jobs. In fact, many of them out and out hate their jobs. So, uh, people are wondering what is the point? You you know build up huge debt in order to get a job that you're going to hate for the rest of your life, and then you die. It seems as if that's very very far from a uh, sacred lifestyle.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, I I agree with you. I mean, all of this is coming up and being considered. You know, and and some of the programs that some of the Democratic candidates for president proposed actually had to go into started with COVID-19. So Andrew Yang was talking about giving a $1,000 to every American per month, right? Um, but that, I don't, mean, so far it was only a one-time thing, but we, you know, every American who had, who the IRS could track, I guess, which is not every American, but still, you know, if they didn't earn over a certain income, I think it was 200,000 got a, a, a check, but it wasn't a check. Sometimes it was a debit card, which is really hysterically funny. I mean, I don't know if they're trying to get people to spend money with the, with that. I'm not sure. Probably.
0: Coming back to Native Americans, they as we talk about before the founding of this country, they seem to live rather well. Uh, without uh, the benefit of running water, without the benefit of electricity, without the benefit of uh, vaccines or credit cards or, or police or courts. Uh, and I even recall uh, reading about anthropologists in the early days who would go live amongst the natives, give up all of the benefits of civilization. And uh, some of them report they were never happier.
1: Oh, yeah. That's what Benjamin Franklin said in the 18th century, that anyone who has tasted savage life, you know, doesn't go back to European civilization, you know, and I know most people will think that's just a, just a racist slur. And perhaps it was, but the, the word savage has changed over time. So it really meant wild and untamed in the 18th century. And Ben Franklin had really very beautiful friendships in Native Americans. I don't, think he was a racist but you know but he used those words and uh and it was commonly used uh as a way to describe native people because they were comfortable in the wild um and uh it is a complex subject that you just brought up but i i agree with you and it it bothers me when when well-intentioned organizations go into third world countries to say, okay, we're going to give you clean water. Now, you know, it, it doesn't, what, what bothers me about it is just that the fact that the reason why they need clean water is because that same, the, the, the Western civilizations came in and generally uh destroyed the water. You know, the, the traditional agriculture didn't so much. Now, Maybe to some degree, traditional did destroy water. You know, when the populations were lower, there was maybe more, the water was able to clean itself a little bit better than when the populations grew. I mean, it's, there's some complexity there that I'm leaving out. But a lot of, you know, there are people like Vandana Shiva, I really, really admire, who spent a lot of time um all over the world. But in India, she began, and she was, a, she was an amazing person who was a physicist too, but she also... She also talked about revitalizing traditional agriculture and traditional ways of working with the environment. Um, those are good to revitalize because there's a lot of wisdom there. And uh, and I'm very much in support of that.
0: I've also um, been reading uh, some anthropology that suggests that when it comes to this idea of the sacred, Native Americans and indigenous North American people in particular, uh, were all mystics. As you pointed out earlier, they identified themselves with the land. they They didn't think of themselves <laughs> to use the famous phrase I think we've referred to earlier by Alan Watts, a skin encapsulated ego. they They had a different vision of what it meant to be human,
1: yeah. in in real succinct terms, their indigenous definition of what it means to be human has to do with your connection with the rest of humanity. Whereas the Western definition, at least since the Renaissance on, has had to do with our separation from the rest of creation. And that's been reflected in the way we think and in our languages. Our languages are subject-object divisive in Indo-European languages. Where indigenous languages are much more immersive; they're verb-oriented. You know, so yeah, no. If you want to be an ecologist, you cannot have this attitude of we're separate. You have to immerse yourself. You have to live. You know, I mean, and Western society is figuring this out. You know, I don't want to be too negative here. Let's 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 give some credit here. So. Let's look at the early anthropologists like Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead. They began, just like other anthropologists, trying to do a scientific study of the community, right? And they would park themselves outside someplace and look in. And Gregory Bateson even did a film early on, I don't remember the title of it or anything, about a culture. And he showed it to them, and the, and the people's reaction was, why are you filming things that are so unimportant? You know, because he wasn't living, but then he got it. He totally got it. And Margaret Mead totally got it. And they started living what's now called participatory action research. They, now, they lived amongst the people. They became part of the tribe as much as possible. That's the only way you can be accepted. That's the only way you can become a friend. That's the only way you can actually understand what's going on. You know, and the same thing is true of the natural world. If we're studying it from a distance, we can't really feel it. You know, we have to be in it. We have to immerse ourselves in, in the natural world. We have to feel the water in our veins. We have to feel the air coming through us. We have to feel the sun, you know, and participate with it. And then, then there's a chance that we're going to want to, then we'll fall in love with it. Love with nature, and if we, I contend, if we fall in love with nature, then we're going to treat each other better too.
0: You told me earlier that uh, ultimately making America sacred again is about love, and it, it's one of the most overused words, of course, in the English language, and uh, one of the most difficult to talk about. But uh, I know that's w- what you're getting at. So, so let's open up the discussion about love. Sure.
1: Well, I can't remember the exact quote, but I quote my, my friend James O'D, who speaks about uh, um, not keeping your heart full all the time, let it empty, let it fill, and then you'll find out when you do that, that love is not something you create, love is a natural property of the universe, and so by letting your heart empty, then it can be refilled naturally, <laughs> that was a beautiful thought because yes, you're right. The word has kind of been overused and stuff, but, but love is what binds things together. You know, love is what connects things as a whole. Uh, love is what dissolves dichotomy and polarization, frustration. Um, uh, love brings women and men together. And of course it brings Men and men, women and women, you know. They, you know this. We're we're we're. You know, it's it, but it brings people together who have some differences, and it dissolves the difference. Love is like water. That's what I say in here. You know, love is of the heart. The heart is of water, and because of this, that is that's kind of the secret. I mean, this actually, I I told a story in my previous books. So I might have uh in original thinking about an experience i had in costa rica and i i could share that with you now where i i had this vision of being a dolphin and as a dolphin i dive down deep into the ocean and then just before i get to the bottom of the ocean i realize i'm a river dolphin so i start coming back up and i come back up and conscious I'm saying I, but in a dream, it's just consciousness. Consciousness moves up into the sky, far up in the sky, and is looking down upon the dolphin that's come up from the bottom of the ocean and is now swimming back toward the mouth of the river. And then consciousness goes further and further apart, and I see many, many rivers that are flowing together into the ocean, and I feel the beating of the heart of Mother Earth, and ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And that was one of the most ecstatic visions I ever had. And I came back and I shared it with Grandfather Leon Secatero, who was a dear elder, the head man of the Canyoncito Band of Navo, And he said something like, that's good, Glenn, because that is the way it is. the the rivers are mother earth's ventricles and and the streams are the capillaries, you know, it's, it's all connected just like that. And the reason why we're having heart disease on the planet now is because we're damming up the rivers and we are, see, we're water beings, the planet is a water being and we're connected in that way. Um, And, I think that's why love is the answer.
0: One of one of the real issues that you, that you have raised throughout your book is this that if we're going to right the wrongs that have historically uh, occurred in this country including I think genocide uh, particularly with regard to Native Americans we have to look at our dark side. We can't really get in touch with the fullness of our capacity to love if if we don't have some sort of reconciliation with our own uh, demonic nature. Um, that's
1: very true. That's very, very true. And I make that point in the book. And, and Donald Trump, I mean, ironically, I mean, I, I, I mention him in my acknowledgments. He's the last person I, I acknowledge for his perhaps unwitting role of being a catalyst for the unveiling of the American shadow. So that has happened. It also happened under Obama's presidency, not because Obama necessarily did anything bad, but because he was the first African-American president. Um, and it, it, what happened, what has been happening for quite some time now is that Americans are beginning to see themselves the way they really are. And that has an amazing benefit. The shift in consciousness and Jeff, you've been talking about shifted consciousness. I've been talking about shifted consciousness for so long. It seems like it's really happening now before our eyes. The shifted consciousness in just a month from in white America, vis-a-vis how police uh, 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 treat minorities was amazing. Um, it was something like between it went jumped from 25% to 70%. 25% of white Americans used to think that it was only a few bad apples in the police department that treated minorities unfairly. Now it's now almost 70% or and I'm not sure if I'm on the right statistic, but pretty close to that are aware of they're they're finally awakened to the fact of systemic racism that has existed. So yeah, you know we do have to confront our shadow. We do have to be. Uh, kind to each other first and then love. So, yeah, I mean, if I'm putting love too forward, um, uh, that is a danger. But That's not the way I wrote the book. The love is the very last thing.
0: Well, Glenn Aparicio-Perry, once again, a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with me and with our audience.
1: Well, thank you for bringing your your presence, your knowledge, your wisdom every day. So, thank you, Jeff. It's It's a joy to
0: be with you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.